Chapter One of England in the Middle Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. England in the Middle Ages by Elizabeth O'Neill. The Norman Settlement, 1066 through 1100. The crowning of William the Norman on Midwinter Day, 1066, marks a definite crisis in English history. The Saxon system, in its strength and weakness, its sturdiness and its insularism, gave way to a new order which, by way of experiment and with some sacrifice, was to be the way of progress. The weight of the conqueror's hand was to be felt in a conscious readjustment of the national institutions, a process carried out with a passion for legal definition which ignored fine shades of custom and tradition, and which in so far was brutal. As a set-off to this prime fact, it must be remembered that now, for the first time, England was brought into touch and ultimately into line with European civilization, and this at the outset of a period whose refinements were outstandingly cosmopolitan. The ultimate results to the national life were undoubtedly beneficial, but meanwhile the conquest was a real conquest and involved the inevitable suffering which accompanies the degradation of a proud nation. The new civilization involved class distinctions which had never before been felt so keenly in England. For almost three centuries the upper classes spoke French, and only French, so that even kings who sympathized and were loved of their people could not speak their language. As the years wore on and the inevitable fusion did its work, the foreign element was merged into the English. The foreign idiom became the despised French of Stratford Atibot, and this is but significant of the triumph of the strong subsoil of English life over the Norman elements which had meanwhile done so much for its improvement. The conscious policy of the first Norman king made for such fusion from the first, for the conqueror was a statesman even more than a soldier. There was no immediate confiscation of lands from the English after Hastings. There was ample from which to reward William's Norman followers in the lands of those who had died for Harold. The English landowners paid homage for their lands and received them again with a difference but hastings was not the conquest and in the passionate revolts of the next few years the english race of nobles and gentlemen was swept away and the english aristocracy became norman though an english leaven was provided by the choice of wives from among the english william made no immediate difference in the formal government of england he discerned in the democratic basis of the english courts or moots an element which might be taken into alliance with the crown in the struggle which he inevitably foresaw between his own conception of kingship and the anarchic forces of feudalism in ten sixty seven william left england for his lands oversea for henceforth for centuries the interests of an english king were thus duplicated he tactfully took with him most of the english nobles but the reaction which he thus strove to avert was precipitated by the reckless tyranny of the Norman nobles who were left behind, and whose aim was merely to exploit the conquered country. 
the english rose as one man in all parts of the country except the southeast which had had first-hand experience of william's power the king returned to stamp out a revolution which was the more formidable for the support of the danes and scotch which it won it took william four years to kill resistance but he did it so thoroughly that he left no hope for another such movement among the english the struggle has a romantic and heroic interest as we dimly discern the figures of the saxon leaders fighting hopefully or desperately for their racist cause there were the earls edwin and morcar the former three times forsworn yet so fascinating in his fair beauty that william wept for his fate when edwin was murdered by his own followers there were two bishops like ethelwyn taking the revenge for their dethronement in favor of the norman prelates whom william favored there were figures like waltheof son of Sigurd the stout doing wonder deeds in the north against the norman and hereward the wake who joined edwin and morcar in the camp of refuge at ely and held it with some hundreds of desperate englishmen until william bridged the fens with a causeway and compelled them to come in to his allegiance earl waltheof too had given in at last and held faithful to his word but he was made the victim of a belated plot betrayed some say by his wife judith the conqueror's niece he died a martyr's death being beheaded at winchester and laid to rest in the abbey he loved at crowland hereward was slain sleeping by a band of bretons under ralph of tewkesbury jealous of his favour with the king these heroic figures are the sublimated types of the englishmen of their day brave unquestionably spiritual with little of the element of fear which played so large a part in the religion of the normans whose religion acted in reaction from ruthlessness but they seemed to have lacked something which the norman had of forethought and organizing power the great gift of that race to the english nation the hold of william on the english was finally secured when in ten seventy two malcolm canmore of scotland who had married the sainted margaret niece of edward the confessor and sister of edgar the etheling definitely did homage to the conqueror at abernethy on the tay and reconcile with him too the etheling whom he had been helping the outstanding result of the struggle besides the prime fact of the renewed submission of the english was the devastation of the north for william deemed it a salutary lesson to lay waste the land between the umber and the tees burning the cottages and killing man and beast so that the land lay literally desert for nearly a decade the english resistance was dead but william had to reckon with the turbulence of his norman followers all the broad lands of england were his now to give and he satisfied their greed the feudal theory by which all the land of the kingdom was the king's to give out as he would was taken for granted but william had seen the workings of the feudal system in france he knew the power of a great vassal like himself when he chose to oppose his liege lord the king of france whether by accident or design these conditions were not reproduced in england the normans who received the largest grants of land found that their possessions were scattered over the country 
so that it would not be easy for any one man to concentrate an army against the king in case of rebellion only in the great palatine earldoms on uncertain border country did he swerve from this policy and give to the tenant almost regal power as at durham and chester such was necessary in the cause of order nevertheless william had to face many vexatious feudal revolts for years at his wedding feast at norwich in ten seventy five earl ralph of norfolk joined roger of hereford in a plot against william they and waltheof if he would join them but he refused should share the power between them the english support on which they counted was reserved for william and defeated the hired breton soldiers of the rebels robert william's eldest son one of the most interesting figures in this period for a modern touch of indifference which acted in a curious contrast with feverish births of striving rose in revolt against his father in ten seventy nine demanding his heritage of normandy and maine promised to him on his father's death father and son met in arms at gerberoy in normandy the son wounded the father in the hand unknowingly and there followed immediately a characteristically medieval scene of passionate remorse and reconciliation robert had the support of william's norman vassals who hoped for greater license under a rule less stern the fact was further illustration to william of the evils of continental feudalism and he took a further step for the prevention of its growth in england in ten eighty five he was advised by the wise men at gloucester to make an inquest into the state of the country to find out how much land there was in every shire how many landholders and lesser men and the worth of them all the results were written down in domesday book from which we glean nearly all we know of the conditions which prevailed in the england of that day in ten eighty six william summoned all military tenants whether holding from himself or from his tenants to swear an oath of allegiance to him on salisbury plain it has generally been considered as an act of great significance though some recent historians have suggested that it was not without precedent according to a pure feudal system subtenants men holding land from the king's tenants or the tenants-in-chief owed allegiance only to their immediate lord who could and did lead them against their king the salisbury oath prevented this the king in such matters was to have precedence over the lord and william secured thus for the english crown a direct hold on the military forces of feudal england it may be well to realize here that england had now become feudal in a very real sense that forces were tending towards the state before the conquest is certain but equally certain is it that the conquest and the assumptions of the norman lawyers made universal what was before but local many englishmen had in the disturbed days of the danish invasions commended their lands to richer neighbors and received them back again with the promise of protection in return for homage and perhaps some service here is the germ of feudalism but there were parts of england and especially in the northeast where free men dwell on what would now be called small holdings and owned allegiance to no man but loyalty to their king 
there was no place for these in the feudal system as known by the norman lawyers whose tendency was merely to assume their dependence the net result was a degradation in the status though not always in the mode of life of many such men english feudalism as a political system had from the first the hiatus caused by the centralizing policy of the norman kings but it triumphed in england as a system of land tenure though disintegrating forces such as the growth of boroughs were early at work undermining it the feudal system had as its unit the manor with agricultural land some worked in the interest of the lord the mezzan land the rest in the interest of the tenants there were an infinite variety of tenures according to the service owed by the vassals some were servile tenures and some were free a free tenant might and would generally pay rent in kind or he might owe labor but in a definite and moderate degree the essence of a servile tenure was that the tenant was at the bailiff's disposal in the matters of the times and places at which he would serve the domesday report was made in terms of manners though the inquest was made through the english divisions of ville hundred and shire the norman tendency was to find a manorial unit and the term was applied even to the numerous free villages in the danish part of the land north of watling street where no other lord existed the king was assumed to hold the manor by the thirteenth century the manorial system was practically universal in england and the manors approximated to one type an open field village with two roads intersecting each other along which the tenants had their dwellings with the church and the hall at the centre the fields were laid out in strips which belonged some to the tenants some to the lord of the manor the manor even in thirteenth-century england was self-contained and self-sufficing still more was it so in the early norman period money was hardly used and the few specialized artisans were paid in kind domesday book accounted for two hundred and eighty thousand people these were chiefly the heads of families and when allowances made for emissions of certain classes the population of the country may be computed at about one and a half millions about two hundred thousand are enumerated whose tenure was such that it was natural for the norman lawyers in a generation or two to write it down servile besides twenty thousand actual slaves a class which was merged into the rank of villain early in the norman period of higher classes of tenants thirty five thousand are enumerated so that even before the conquest these were already in the minority the effects of the feudal system on the social life of medieval england can hardly be exaggerated but the most characteristic aspect of continental feudalism had a little place here the lords of the manors did justice in minor manners but they could not deal with cases in which life or limb were involved these were reserved for the king's court one side of the conqueror's policy toward the land of england has earned for him a sinister renown he loved the great deer as though he were their father and he passed severe laws imposing cruel mutilations on all who should interfere with the royal hunting the story has been told endlessly of how william reserved the new forest for his pleasures and 
sacrificed whole villages to its cemetery but the light of modern research tends to discount the amount of destruction involved certain it is however that the forest laws were horribly severe and show a brutality which is not characteristic of the policy of these first norman kings the conqueror maintained the old english policy of avoiding the death penalty for mere felonies william's treatment of the english church affords better than any other sphere illustration of the manner in which continental standards were imposed upon the english a century before the conquest a monastic reform had spread over saxon england but its inspiration was exhausted and the standard of life among lower and higher clergy alike was extremely easy his sympathies and his policy alike inclined william to take measures to bring the forces of the hildebrandine revival to bear upon the english church the movement by which the great pope hildebrand had breathed new life into the western church was then in full force on the continent the norman prelates whom william brought to england were impregnated with it in ten ninety a complete reorganization of the english church was begun three papal legates took part in the council which determined the drastic measures of reform the pluralist stigand who had hitherto found some measure of favour with the king was deposed from canterbury and from winchester it was an outstanding example of the grasping spirit which pervaded the upper clergy in the lower ranks there was but little observance of the canons imposed by the church married priests abounded within two years two or at most three english bishops remained in english sees stegen was replaced by lanfranc abbot of st stephen's at Caen, whither he had gone from the famous benedictine abbey of beck he was a man outstanding for his scholarship and piety he had been a lawyer before the cloister claimed him and in his zeal for reform and efficiency he illustrates the better type of the great ecclesiastics of that period it has been stated to his discredit that he forged documents proving canterbury's privileges with regard to york but the standard of honour in these matters differed from that of to-day if the cause were acknowledgedly good an irritating absence of evidence to support it might surely be supplied it was probably he rather than william who decided that the separation of the ecclesiastical from the lay courts was necessary hitherto the bishops had sat in the lay courts and though they probably had the preponderance they had no monopoly of the meeting out of justice in cases which the church would have claimed as being liable to spiritual jurisdiction even these very councils which reformed ecclesiastical matters in england were held in the presence of the king and the lay lords william seems to have consented readily to decree the future separation of church and lay courts this was really a corollary of the acceptance of the hildebrandine standard of spirituality in the church the measure had in its inevitable seeds of friction but william felt his own strength too great to lay stress on this the seats of english bishoprics were in several cases removed from small and decaying places to towns whose progressive spirit made them a better setting 
a general bracing affected all sides of ecclesiastical life a spirit of labor and study led to a revival of english scholarship though it took the form of dogma and dialectics norman abbots reformed the monasteries and many new monastic foundations were made the change was for the better though here again hints of suffering come to us dimly at glastonbury thurston the new norman abbot called in french soldiers to enforce a new method of chanting on a community which seems to have been dull to learn but in no way recalcitrant after the fray many monks lay dead or wounded cut down in the very sanctuary thurston was deprived by the king and the case was probably without parallel but it may well have been an exaggerated example of the obscure suffering which so relentless a reform imposed from without must have caused during his visit to normandy in 1067 the conqueror had lavished on norman churches rich treasures taken by way of fines from the english monasteries william ranked as a loyal son of the church but he was careful to uphold his position as an independent sovereign though he had come to win the realm under a papal banner he made it clear that he would owe no fealty to the pope for his kingdom a chronicler tells us that william also laid down certain rules which prevented undue intrusion of the ecclesiastical powers into lay spheres no pope should be acknowledged or papal bull received without the king's consent the separate church councils must have his sanction too to make their acts binding and none of his barons or servants were to be excommunicated without his permission whether formulated or not such was in fact the stand which william almost inevitably took on his deathbed he could boast that he had never hurt god's church though he was stained with rivers of blood it was while pursuing that continental policy which was to haunt so many english kings that william met his death in ten eighty nine he claimed the overlordship of maine and had temporarily secured it with english help in ten seventy three roused by an incursion into normandy of the people of montes early in ten eighty seven he revived an old claim on the vexin of which montes was the capital and went to war for it his anger was aggravated by the report of a jest of philip of france on the increasing corpulence of the english king the land round montes was savagely laid waste and the city itself burned the exertion and excitement aggravated the results of a violent knock against the pommel of his saddle caused by the stumbling of the king's horse in the streets of montes on his deathbed william bequeathed normandy and maine to robert a reluctant recognition of his claims as eldest son to william he gave england and to henry a sum of money with so the chroniclers said after the event the assurance that he would one day hold all that his father had ever had william i in his gigantic strength his sane spirituality his stern and conscious zeal for justice untempered by mercy at once sublimates and typifies his race his son william resembled him in spite of the sinister impression some strange quality in him made on his contemporaries so that tradition has made of him almost a monster physically he was not unlike his father though with a less handsome bearing and a more 
marked corpulence he had a loud voice but not remarkably deep like the conqueror's his full-blooded complexion indicative of his choleric temperament brought him the nickname of rufus the red king was indeed terrible in anger as his father was yet he could boast that he never did in anger what he would not have done in cold blood he showed however none of the conqueror's scrupulous observance politic rather than sympathetic of the rights of his subjects and his rule soon shaped itself into a tyranny in the beginning the norman barons rose against william's rule on robert's behalf whose proverbial weakness would have made him an acceptable overlord to them lanfranc rallied the english in william's favour promising them good laws and the result was soon stamped out but in ten eighty nine lanfranc died and with him the traditions of the conqueror's rule ranulf flambard as justiciar became the foremost man in the realm and with his clever connivance william embarked on a course of tyranny it is often difficult to state with precision the exact nature of misrule in the middle ages and this applies the more to this period as the exact details of the working of the constitution what was preeminently a time of transition are not very clear much dissatisfaction may have arisen from the mere crystallizing of feudal practice and it is recorded that the justiciar was careful to give a show of legal right to his tyranny in his capacity as judge too ranulf sold justice and any crime might be committed with impunity if the wrongdoer were able to give sufficient financial compensation we hear too of forced and excessive labor for the king was a great builder london bridge and the great hall at westminster were built by him all through history great building works have typified the power of tyrants and in periods when feudalism broke bounds forced labor at castle building was always a crying grievance with the oppressed moreover william showed little respect for the rights and dignities of the church grossly immoral in his private life in health he was a loud and shameless blasphemer but in illness he cringed to religion he kept abbacies and bishoprics in his own hands when they fell vacant and administered them with a heavy hand not for four years after lanfranc's death did he appoint his successor and then in ten ninety three ill and repentant he forced the primacy on anselm the saintly abbot of beck anselm was one of those meek men who were obdurate where a principle is involved like many another medieval prelate he was more ultramontane than the pope himself he had no inclination to be yoked to a wild bull but once in harness he would not allow himself to be run away with already in ten ninety three there was friction the king preparing for an expedition to normandy refused the liberal contribution of anselm towards his expenses as too small he refused to fill several abbacies which he held vacant finally he declared that he had no need of the archbishop's blessing to his crossing over and departed unblessed after william's return in ten ninety five an open quarrel took place over anselm's recognition of urban as the rightful one of two rival popes william regarded this as an infringement of his own rights over the english church ultimately he recognized urban independently 
two years later the king complained bitterly of the equipment of the knights furnished by anselm for his service in wales for every bishop was a baron too and even anselm had so far borne himself as such towards the king he refused however to answer for his neglect in person and left england for rome where he received little encouragement and so withdrew to france where he remained until after the red king's death william's prowess justified his father's choice of him as king of england in one particular at least he was glorious in arms normandy cut up and bartered among the three brothers for some years fell at last to the english king in ten ninety five when robert elected to go on crusade and mortgaged his heritage for the needful gold the conquest of wales was in process and was only prevented from completion by william's death as it was the south and east were won by normans who became the marcher lords north wales alone remained under native control cumberland was reft from scotland and malcolm had once more to acknowledge himself the man of the english king he died before william and his saintly wife margaret soon followed him disappointed in her hope for the life of the cloister she had devoted all the force of her idealism to civilizing and in some sort anglicizing her husband's realm william's triumphant course was cut short by his tragic death from the arrow of his friend walter tyrrell while hunting in the new forest it was probably quite accidental men saw in it the appropriate judgment of god his body lay all day in the forest for walter stricken with panic had fled at sunset it was taken up and drawn in a charcoal burner's cart to winchester in the cathedral there the second norman king was laid to rest unhouseled unanointed unannealed end of chapter one